Hi, this is Wayne Zell and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your fast-paced half hour to an hour of special guests and special topics that are designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And we focus on CEOs, executives, and entrepreneurs who really have great stories to tell. Today, my special guest is a good friend and a colleague and a mentor, General, Major General, retired Arnold Punara. Welcome, welcome, General. Welcome to the program. Well, Wayne, thank you. A great privilege to be with thank you today. Thank you so much. Um, I've known General Panara for a while, and he's helped me out of a few jams, and hopefully I've helped him out of a few. And so it's a mutual uh, respect Absolutely. society that we've got going on. Um, first, a little bit about the general, his background. Uh, he is currently the CEO of the Punaro Group, punarogroup.com, which is a Washington-based firm that offers business development, strategic planning, and federal budget and market analysis, particularly in the government contract sector. He was previously an executive VP at SAIC, and he's very well known on the Hill. He was Senator Sam Nunn's staff director of the Armed Services Committee for quite a while. And in 2011, he was named by Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta to chair the newly constituted Reserves Forces Policy Board, which is an independent advisor to the Secretary of Defense. So he's deeply involved in what's going on in the Defense Department, so much so that he's written really a well, extremely well-received book called The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Congratulations on the book, by the way. I hear it's going really well for you. Thanks, Wayne. The, um, the, the premise of the book is to as I understand it, is to focus on the fact that we're spending more money than ever on DOD matters, but our fighting force is dwindling. It's shrinking. And your, your thesis, out of the, what I took out of the book was, we need to stop spending money on bureaucracy and start spending money on what matters. Tell us what matters at the DOD and what we're not spending efficiently on today. Well, Wayne, thank you again. It's such a privilege to be with you. And, and thank you for the great help and assistance you've given me personally, my family. Uh, anytime we had anything that we brought to your attention, you got right on it, helped thank us you. out. And it's been a great, great professional and personal friendship over the thank years. You, I would say the reason that we need to get more bang for the buck than we're getting now is, uh, without question, you look at the external and internal threats that we're dealing with. China's on the march. Russia's on the move and on the attack. North Korea's on the verge. Iran is close to building a nuclear weapon. Global terrorism is reconstituting itself, not just in Afghanistan and the federal administered tribal areas. And we're dealing with some internal issues in terms of the security of our borders and other things like that. So when we need a strong, we need a strong national defense and deterrence more than ever. And the way you do that is that you have a credible fighting force. And it's not just spending the amount of money, it's what you get for what you spend, not how much you spend. And again, as you mentioned, we're spending more in constant dollars, that is take out all the inflation effects than at the peak of the Reagan buildup and our fighting force is 50% smaller, whether you measure Army divisions, Marine Corps battalions, Navy battle force ships, Air Force fighter squadrons, any measure that you, we have 1 million less active duty personnel than we had at the peak of the Reagan buildup. And so we need to get more bang for the buck because the threats have, have gotten a lot worse. We, we are in a more unstable and dangerous situation right now than the peak of the Cold War. When you say, so, when you say getting so, more bang for the buck, 
Are you talking about streamlining, fixing broken processes in the government? Yes, I am, Wayne. And thank you for, for pointing that out because the former Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, once told me, Arnold, bad processes beat good people every day. And what we have is a lot of good people in the Pentagon, on the Hill, in our military, in our industry, but they're laden with these incredibly bureaucratic processes that make it their output very inefficient for the amount of dollars we spend. So the processes are, uh, Congress is badly broken. I worked up there for 24 years. They don't get their work done on time. They don't pass the appropriations on time. Uh, we, are, we operate under continuing resolutions. Last year, we didn't get the final appropriation till March 14th, and you already saw it in Lockheed's earning calls today. Their revenues were down in Q1 because of the, the slowness. And here's a company that we would like them right now to be producing more weapons for the Ukrainians to help. And so we've just got to get more bang for the buck and we've got to streamline and fix all these broken processes. Where does it start? Where does it, where do we begin? Because it's such a massive undertaking, it sounds like. Well, where it begins is you've got to get strong leaders with backbone that are willing to break some China. I say not only break some China, shatter the China because we have so far that we have to go. We've had good people. For example, when former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter and Frank Kendall were running acquisition, they had something called better buying power. It made, a, it made some improvements, but the problem was we needed to improve from the five yard, our own five yard to the, the opposing team's five yard line, and we only moved it like 10 yards. So, so despite all the good work of people over the years, uh, when it comes to the acquisition, we spend, Wayne, in the Department of Defense, $400 billion on goods and services, supplies and equipment. And the only charitable thing you can say about the output is spend more, take longer, get less. We used to be able to build a, fight, build a fighter aircraft from contract to first flight in five years, now it's 25 years. Guess who does it in five years? China. Guess what? China has one shipyard that builds 11 surface combatants a year that's more than we build in all our five for-profit shipyards. So we have just got to basically streamline the bureaucracy when it comes to acquisition, reduce the massive overhead that we have in the department, and we've got to deal with the basic, the cost that the cost of personnel and benefits. Can we, as a country, with our weakened economy, um, produce at the level and the speed that the Chinese are producing? What would it take us to get there? What it would take is stability in budgets and predictability in budgets. When the budgets kind of go like this and you don't know from one year to the next, uh, getting the second and third order supply chain uh, that it takes to basically produce a Javelin or a Stinger or an Abrams tank or an F-35 aircraft, these are small businesses that are the backbone of our economy. They're not going to basically start forging a landing gear for an F-35 if they don't know if the money's going to be there. And so... We don't have stability or predictability in our budgeting and they never pass the budget on time. And so if you were running a normal business like the way the government runs the Department of Defense, uh, you'd be broke in a couple of months. So the, the processes when it comes to budgeting and things need to be fixed. It's not just a question of, oh, we're gonna have a huge increase. By the way, we have about a $43 billion increase from FY21 to FY22, but guess what? It didn't pass till March 14th. The department doesn't have enough time between now and the end of September when the O&M and personnel money evaporate to actually spend right. the money. 
Uh, so, so, so they throw money at bad ideas of, and bad bad projects just to spend it because it otherwise is not that, That's correct. We call it the year-end spending purge, right. you know, and, and uh, the, the way that Congress has appropriated money encourages bad habits. And so, so there's actually a commit. Yeah, go well, ahead. No, I'm, I'm piecing this together in my, in my uh, uneducated mind for the listeners uh, who may not have heard this before. Um, it's really a failure of leadership in the military and the DOD, but it's also a failure of leadership at the congressional level, which is really where they need to be moving faster with, with greater focus, greater speed is what I'm hearing you say. That, that's correct. I, I would say, again, I spent 24 years in the Senate, worked with the House, had passed the defense bill every year, uh, sometimes on time, sometimes not. But if you look at Congress, when, when anything they deal with that's important, I would say to you, the ice age move faster than Congress moves when things are in trouble. They just can't seem to get their work done on time. And they, they can't seem to do the simplest things uh, without a lot of, of, of bureaucracy and, and finger pointing and food fighting. And so uh, they need to focus on what the real challenges and threats are. One of the things that is very worrisome about what China's doing they're not only on the march militarily, economically, and diplomatically, they now have more diplomatic posts around the world than we have. They are on the march technologically. There are some areas where they are ahead of the United States technologically, hypersonic weapons, for example. They're selling the heck out of 5G to a lot of our allies because they are ahead of us. They're faster, they're cheaper. And we don't like it. We don't like Huawei. But if you go to, they're, they're sewing up South America. They're sewing up our allies in the Middle East. They're sewing up our allies. And that's because the product is there, it's ready, and it's at a reasonable price, and we're not competitive. Right. So a lot of these technologies that are important to the Department of Defense, artificial intelligence, microelectronics, quantum, are important to our, our own economy. And that's why we've got to basically push research and development, and we need to bring more commercial best practices into government. Uh, the small businesses that are commercial uh, are fast, they basically are extremely innovative, but the government bureaucracy is an extreme disincentive for them to do anything with the Department of Defense. Interesting. And and I think you mentioned in the book that um, there's a, an incredible absence of accountability in measuring uh, people to performance goals as opposed to, have you spent the money yet? Wayne, it's really sad, for example, there's been over $100 billion of programs canceled. Future Combat System, the Comanche Helicopter, the Crusader, the DivAd Air Defense Gun, uh, Dimers, which was a massive personnel system, and, and ships. You go on and on and on, and then you look and see, okay, who was held accountable for these failures? Not one person. Uh, and, and I don't get it. I truly don't get it. For example, in the Navy, if you're a submarine captain and you run over a sandbar, you're fired by lunchtime. But if you're somebody that's that's spending $15 billion to build an aircraft carrier that doesn't work, nothing happens to you. Wow. You mentioned in the book, there are some ticking time bombs that are lurking out there for all of us. Um, there are four of them. One was the broken acquisition system. And that's where you said, uh, we're spending more, it takes longer and we're getting less. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? How do we fix this, this broken system? Well, I think I think the way we fix it is is we basically bring commercial best practices to the department. We get rid of what we call the 5500 series, which is this massive directive on 
to the 154,000 people in the department that work in acquisition, including 35,000 contracting officers, and say, look, we want speed. We want to be better, faster, cheaper than China. That's what we want. That's the goal. Whatever you need to do, do it and, and not get caught up. For example, um, the requirements process I've criticized over the years, if the Army could get away with it, they would want a nuclear powered tank that could fly itself to the battlefield. Well, technologically, that's not feasible. And of course, cost prohibitive. The Army had a requirement for buying chocolate chip cookies that was 38 pages long. And so oh you have to streamline the requirements process and get industry involved early on so they can tell the government if what they want to do is technically feasible and how much it might cost right. so they can make better decisions up front. You've got to get the bureaucracy out of the way. Again, we used to be able to do this. I mean, again, we did this in the peak of the Cold War. Right. For example, the, the, the revolutionary stealth flighter that was built in Lockheed Skunk Works out in Palmdale, California, they did that in remarkable amount of time. And they were producing aircraft, uh, classified aircraft, till they decided to make it public. So we know we can do it. But over the, over the years, every time there's been a little glitch, we've added some requirement. And as, as Admiral Sandy Winifield, the former vice chairman of the, of the Joint Chiefs used to say, there are 10,000 people that can say no and only one person that can say yes. And so you, you've got to basically uh, streamline the bureaucracy. Again, you don't see this in for-profit companies. No. You don't see it in your business uh, because we'd all go broke yeah. if we operated like that. Right. The government, the government, I hate to say this, the government does not have an appreciation of the value of money or the value of time. The, the second ticking time bomb that you alerted us to was the, that so much money is tied up in overhead and support functions for, for the DOD. Tell us a little bit more about that. So in the Department of Defense, uh, as a military warfighter, we always argue we want things uh, in the teeth. We want things at the tip of the spear and not in the rear. But over time, what's called the fence-wide spending, which in my view is kind of the overhead, in a, in a business, it would be called, you know, non-billable troops, you know, or people that are just on the payroll that you can't bill to a customer. Uh, it's gone from 5% of the budget to roughly 20% of the budget. And when your budget's $740 billion, that's a lot of money. When you take the classified portion of what's overhead, it adds another 10%. So to me, almost a third of the DOD budget is an overhead. We've gone from one defense agency, which was the National Security Agency, to now 28. The Defense Logistics Agency, extremely important uh, agency, does more business within the Department of Defense than our largest for-profit company, Lockheed. These are massive organizations, and they're run like government bureaucracies. They are not run like businesses. And so that's also got to be streamlined. And everybody knows it, and they talk about it. And we've got to do better, but nothing ever really changes. So I pointed out in my book, in a number of chapters, here's some reforms that you could do to make the overhead, to reduce the overhead, start moving things from the rear with the gear out to the tip of the spear and also get more bang for the buck. Yeah, you had used the, uh, the embassy bombing in Beirut as an example of that. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, what happened with the embassy bombing in Beirut, and, and I was working in the Senate then, and very sad chapter in, in our country's history and Marine Corps history, more Marines were killed in that than any other battle the Marine Corps have been in on a single day, other than the Battle of Iwo Jima, a legendary uh, Marine Corps battle in World War II. And what happened was, after they did all the after actions, 
there were nine layers of bureaucracy between the colonel that was the commander on the ground and the commander in U.S. European Command, General Bernie Rogers. And there were a lot of, of incidents of, of, of things that happening similar to what happened to the Beirut bombing where a big truck drove through the gate guards and drove into the basement of the building and just destroyed it. Uh, and nobody really survived, but it didn't get filtered down because there were so many bureaucratic layers. And so that was one of the things that got streamlined after the Beirut bombing. It was very personal. Uh, we had a lot of Georgians that were in that. And I also, um, there was a doctor that was the Navy doctor that was deployed with the battalion landing team. All our Marine BLTs always have a Navy doctor. And he was from Georgia. And he was someone that I had, uh, Senator Nunn and I had pen pal with because as he was going through his, his medical training, he was talking about the fact that he was what's called a berry planter, meaning he was deferred to go to medical school, but he said, I'm going to go in the military once I get my medical degree, which he did. And he gave his life for our country. And so, but it was a huge bureaucracy that caused that. It was no fault of the Marines on the ground. Uh, it was the layers of bureaucracy. Now, the, the chain of command is much more streamlined now. And obviously we're much more tuned to terrorist activities. But of course, 9-11, no one ever thought that airplanes would fly into the towers either. My older brother was uh, a, a lieutenant commander on one of the aircraft carriers that took care of those that did survive. And, and the, uh, you know, it's a particularly sensitive issue for me. So thank you for, for bringing that to our attention. Um, the next ticking time bomb was mentioning that we, we really don't account for the lifetime cost of our volunteer forces. Um, we don't do it on a fully burdened basis, all the support, all the benefits, everything else that is required to sustain our fighting forces, our volunteer force um, is not accounted for. All they do is track wages, essentially. That, that seems to be ludicrous. I mean, how can that be? Well, that, that's because they know the sticker shock of the fully burdened cost would have people's eyebrows raised. Look, we can never pay our military, active duty, guard and reserve enough for the sacrifices they make, their families make, and going into harm's way each and every day uh, without reservation. Uh, you know, I start from my own personal experience. The young Marines that served with me in Vietnam were all drafted. They weren't volunteers at the time. They did everything they country asked them to do. Most of the Marines I served with didn't come back. Um, and, and, and that it was repeated time and time again. Unfortunately, the problem we have now is what I call inversion, the same thing that's happening in the social security system. We now have 1.3 million active duty personnel, but we have 2.4 million retirees. So we now have more military that are retired than we are paying on active duty. And we pay people for 60 years to serve for 20 years. So an active duty person that wants to make it to 20 can retire at 20 years. And, and at that retirement, they get 50% uh, of their pay. They get a cost of living adjustment uh, every year and they get free health care for the rest of their life for them and their family. And, and the enlisted average age of an enlisted person is 43 and an officer is 45. And they live to age 84 or 85. When the retirement plans were put in place, people died at age 60. They were never envisioned to have that long a lifespan or that rich a benefit. And so, for example, the military health care bill is $52 billion a year. There are 10 million beneficiaries of which 5.6 million or retirees and their dependents. So we're spending more in DOD's healthcare budget on retirees and their dependents than we are on the active duty military. What would you and do? Would you cut the, the benefits for the retirees? 
I, so anything you do benefit wise, Wayne, you make it proactive, you don't make it retroactive. So when we've made reforms there, we've only we've made them, they didn't go into effect for 20 years. You would do that again. I don't think you ever should change the benefits on somebody after the fact, but you could save a fortune because guess what? For military retirement and military retiree health care, it's on an accrual fund. So you pay money into the treasury every year for future liabilities. So if you change that 20 years out, you could start paying less into that fund now, and that money could go to beams and bullets and, and howitzers and mortars. So there are a lot of things you can do without penalizing the people uh, in that's, terms of their current benefits. That's the key, because you want to be able to attract the best and the brightest to the military as well. And, and we're doing that. We're still attracting them. But, I, but I'll tell you, it's getting harder and harder to recruit. But guess what? One of the greater benefits we had for our military was education. Now, uh, and so we would get that young high schooler that wanted to go in the Army or the Marine Corps, or the Air Force or the Navy and say, look, we'll pay for your education. Starbucks now will pay for the edu college education of anybody that goes to work for them. A lot of Amazon right now, Amazon is moving to Crystal City. I'm sure it's going to be a great outfit there. But for our IT ex experts in our defense industries right now, as one of my hats, I'm chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, the largest of the industry associations. We have 1,700 member companies, mostly small businesses. Amazon is taking our defense workers away that are supporting the Department of Defense with wage packages we can't even remotely get close to matching. And so the, the, the hunt for talent is going to be a real challenge for the United States military going forward. Understood. Last uh ticking time bomb that you had mentioned was we can't build a defense on a weak economy. And uh, with our deficit at 23 trillion or whatever it is and increasing daily uh, and the debt load comprising an increasing percentage of the, of the gross national product, how do we do what you think we need to do efficiently, effectively on a timely basis to be able to withstand what is happening with the Chinese and the Russians and everyone else? Wayne, that's a that's a great point, and and I I, I hark back to my father who fought with Patton in World War II. Many of your family have served in the military, continued to serve in the military. Uh, when I was growing up, and he when he got out of the out of World War II, he became a small businessman. He was a, a general contractor, civil engineer. Um, he said, "Son, when your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall." And he basically hated debt. And if you look at what we have right now, interest on the debt is going up exponentially because interest rates are going up. It used to be in the 60s, 75% of all government funding was discretionary. It meant that the decision makers could make a decision that year where to spend that money that was most needed for the American people. Guess what? That's now flipped. 75% of the $5 trillion the government spends every year is fixed. Most of it is entitlements on auto payment, the rest of it, 15% is interest on the debt. And then you have that limited amount of money left for domestic discretionary health, welfare, housing, education, and of course, national defense right. and homeland defense. And right. so the problem, and, and, and again, the Chinese own a lot of our public debt. And um, so we, we are not in a very good situation. Admiral Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff once said, the biggest threat to our national security is our debt. And I, and I think now people are getting more and more uh, concerned about it because we had to add so much to the debt during COVID. And so uh, my old boss, Senator Nunn, said you can't have a strong defense on a rotten economy. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't suggest the economy's rotten, 
But it's like, Wayne, it's like rust on a bridge. You know, the bridge starts rusting. It starts rusting. You don't know when it's not going to carry the weight it has to carry. Then all of a sudden it collapses. And this is not a hypothetical. We see bridges collapsing all the time. So the deficit is rust on our underlying economy. At the same time, we've got to be competitive with China that doesn't have the same problems that we have when it comes to debt. Yet our Congress is not able to make the courageous and informed decisions that they need you're, to make. You're right. I mean, the, the Simpson-Bowles Commission came up with a great way to fix the deficit and none of the politicians would sign up to it. Everybody has to sacrifice. We've got to cut entitlements. We've got to raise revenues. We've got to constrain, dis, dis, constrain discretionary spending. And you do it over a 20-year period. And everybody sacrifices a little. But, it call, but the politicians have to bite a bullet and say, look, guess what? We can't give you as much as we were giving you. And, and we're going to have to cut back here. They're not willing to take a bullet. They're not willing to make those tough decisions. That's the problem. Last question for today. Um, I could keep you on all day because you're so fascinating to talk to. Well, thank um, you. How does Russia's aggression in Ukraine uh, affect your thesis? You know, China is obviously the, the biggest threat economically and potentially militarily. But how does that impact your thesis? And what do we do about it, by the way? Wayne, I would say it underscores the fact that we absolutely have got to get more bang for the buck because the threats are, are, are even worse than we thought. And, and the future threats with China and Taiwan are a real worry. And if we're going to deter China from going to Taiwan, we've, they've got to see, number one, that we have some real offensive capability. We're prepared to basically help defend Taiwan as required in the Taiwan's Relation Act. And we've got the weapons to do it. When it comes to Russia, what, what that teaches us is we ought to pay attention to what people say. Putin said in 2010 exactly what he was going to do. And he's, first he goes in Georgia, then he goes in Crimea. Now he's in Ukraine. And the fact that he's a ruthless uh, person in that he's pulverizing uh, Ukraine and killing one killing of women and children, which is just so hard to watch. But that the only way you deal with people like Putin and with Xi in China, they only respect power. They only respect your capability as a military power to take them down. And, and so we that's what deterrence is all about. You not only have to have the capability, you've got to be clear about what you do when they cross that line. And so that's why we absolutely, it's more imperative than ever that we get more bang for the buck for the dollars we spend. Wow, that really hits home. I hope a lot of people listen to this. We're going to promote the heck out of it. And I, you know, it's just, it's really scary to think about as an American citizen and as one who has a child going into the military and, you know, others who have served. Uh, first of all, thank you for your service. And secondly, thanks for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. This was uh, a fabulous segment and uh, we're going to air it probably multiple times because people need to hear this stuff, you know? Well, well, thank you, Wayne. Obviously a great honor and privilege to be with you today and be on your program. Thank you. And stay tuned for a special topic that will be linked to what General Panaro was talking about. This is Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell. And thanks for tuning in. Hi, this is Wayne Zell and welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth for your educational moment. Today, we're going to be talking about the federal budget and what President Biden has proposed as the fiscal year 2023 budget. So let's go ahead and take a look at the slides. We're gonna briefly cover 
an overview of what President Biden has proposed as his 2023 fiscal year federal budget. We'll talk about what mandatory spending is included in that budget and discretionary spending, which is really where Congress sets the appropriations for what they want to spend money on from a discretionary perspective. I'll drill into uh, a little bit on the defense spending, and then we'll talk about receipts that are uh, being used by the government. How are we paying for all of these expenditures today? President Biden's proposals break down as follows, but it's a $5.8 trillion budget in totality for fiscal year 2023. It's really a blueprint of what he hopes to achieve and what the administration hopes to achieve, obviously subject to passage and approval by the U.S. Congress. The mandatory spending constitutes 73% of the overall budget. We'll talk about what mandatory means, but that's $4.2 trillion out of the $5.8 trillion of spending. Discretionary, 27%, amounts to only $1.6 trillion out of the total budget. The receipts that are expected to pay for the budget equal about $4.4 trillion, including Biden's proposed tax increases. That leaves a deficit in 2023 of $1.4 trillion and a projected deficit of $14.4 trillion through 2032. Here's a pie chart that shows generally how things break out. On the mandatory side, you include Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, other, which is kind of amorphous, and interest on the national debt. The discretionary budget consists of defense and non-defense discretionary spending. As I mentioned, mandatory spending includes Social Security and Medicare, and those two items alone account for approximately 40% of all mandatory spending. Medicaid is another $556 billion, and interest on the national debt, which is rising rapidly because interest rates are going up, is projected to be about $400 billion in fiscal year 2023. So this equals about $4.1 trillion, 71 to 73% of all spending. Here's a chart that shows how the discretionary spending breaks out. And as you can see, the vast majority of discretionary spending is dedicated to the defense budget, as well as Veterans Affairs and HHS. But the defense budget is projected to be $773 billion for fiscal year 2023. What are we spending money on in the defense budget? Well, there is a dedication by the Biden administration to increase spending on defense by over $44.5 billion over fiscal year 2022. And in the president's projected budget, he's projecting to increase defense spending by over $20 billion a year for the next five years. M much of this spending is dedicated towards determined efforts against Russia and China, including a $10 billion shift in resources from within the Defense Department to dedicate towards these determined, eff determined efforts. 
It also includes more spending on biodefense and pandemic readiness and technology spending on artificial intelligence, microchips, hypersonic weapons, which is where China has excelled recently, more research and development spending, technology spending, nuclear modernization. The budget also includes climate and energy resilience spending so that we're not so dependent on oil for our needs. And last but not least, it includes significant increase in Air Force modernization as well as Space Force spending, mostly on satellites. The $4.4 trillion of money that is expected to come in to help pay for the budget, leaving still a deficit of $1.4 trillion, 53% of the receipts generated by the U.S. government come from the individual income tax system. So it's highly dependent on raising taxes in order to spend the money on the things we need to spend money on. 10.5% is spent, it, it comes from the corporate income tax, and another 23% comes from Social Security payroll taxes, and 7.2% comes from Medicare taxes. All in all, income tax, corporate tax, Social Security, and Medicare tax amount to 94% of all receipts that we receive in order to pay for all of the spending. So it's a conundrum that we are faced with in terms of how to raise money to spend the money wisely for the needs that Congress and the president believe are important to spend money on. If you'd like to know more about the tax side of things, the receipt side of things, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or visit us on the web at zellaw.com and we'd be happy to talk to you more about the tax increases that may be coming down the pike to help spend the money that the Biden administration has proposed spending for fiscal year 2023. I'm Wayne Zell, and thank you so much for listening to Blueprint for Wealth, and join us next time for a special topic and special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Have a great week. Thank you.